This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. Welcome to East of Eden, the Biblical and Systematic Theology of Jonathan Edwards. I'm your host today, Nick Batzig. It's good to have you tuning in and listening with us. We are sitting down with our three panelists today that we are exceedingly thankful to have on the show. First, we have Dr. Craig Beal, who is the author of The Infinite Merit of Christ, a book that examines the active and the passive obedience of Christ in the teaching of Jonathan Edwards. Craig also has a new book out that we are excited to tell you about, is a study guide to the religious affections published by Solid Ground Books. I want to encourage our listeners to get a copy of that. Craig, it's great to have you on the show this morning. Great to be here. Thanks, Nick. Also, keep an eye out for Craig's forthcoming uh, study guide to Original Sin by Jonathan Edwards. These sound like two very helpful books, um, to two very important books written in church history, and so I'm sure that they are going to be a benefit to the church and the ministers and students of theology as they seek to grow in their understanding of the importance of Edwards' works. We also have, sitting down with us this morning, Dave Filson. Dave is the teaching pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. He is a Ph.D. student at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. He also teaches a course on Jonathan Edwards at RTS Charlotte, And if you want to find more of his writings on the web, you can visit him at teachinglikerain.wordpress.com. Dave, it's great to have you on the show this morning. So glad to be here with you all. Finally, we have Jeffrey C. Waddington, who many of you will know, the teacher of the congregation at Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. And congratulations, Jeff. You have just finished writing your last chapter to your doctoral dissertation on Edwards, haven't you? I have. And so when will your, um, when will your uh, exams be? When will you, you come for your oral examinations? Well, uh, Lord willing, that would probably be next May, a year from now. Not this next month, but a year from next month. All right. We can't wait to call you Dr. Waddington. So we know that that, that book also hopefully will get published one day. And and be a great resource for those that want to go deeper in understanding Jonathan Edwards' apologetic method. So we have three guys who have done a tremendous amount of work on Jonathan Edwards, and um, we come this morning to consider uh, the second in our podcast of his sermons. We are looking at Edwards' well-known sermon, God Glorified in Man's Dependence. God Glorified in Man's Dependence. This, interestingly, was um, Edwards' first published work in 1731. I did not know that before we started doing this podcast, and so I thought that was an interesting fact. Um, Edwards first preached God glorified a man's dependence in 1730 in Northampton to his own congregation, and then he preached it July 8th, 1731, the same summer that he preached East of Eden. He preached it to a congregation in Boston. Um, it's a sermon based on 1 Corinthians 1, 29-31, which essentially says, But of him, of God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. I wanted to kick it off this morning to Craig um, to talk to our listeners a little bit, if you would, about the historical background of this sermon. Why was it important that Edwards re-preached this sermon a year after he initially preached it and that he preached it to a congregation in Boston? Well, the occasion of Edwards' second preaching of the sermon, <clears throat> excuse me, was Edwards was invited by the Boston ministers to preach the public sermon during the week of Harvard's commencement. And the timing was fortuitous in that it guaranteed that Edwards' audience would be filled with a large number of prominent New England ministers, including much of the faculty and leadership of Harvard. Now, this was significant because at the time, the spirit of Harvard and the perception of many ministers of the Harvard leadership was that they were too theologically accommodating or they were becoming indifferent 
to the distinctions between the doctrines of God's sovereignty and mercy and salvation uh, as vis-a-vis or as opposed to Arminianism. In fact, uh, Yale was started in response to this perceived theological drift of Harvard. So mm-hmm. it was a rather important setting that Edwards, uh, well, that Edwards was asked to preach this, and it was uh, quite an audience that he had to to make his make his points. Now, um, it wasn't exactly that the ministers or the leadership of Harvard were explicitly emphasizing the doctrines of Arminianism, but they were. They were treating the differences between Arminianism and Calvinism as not worthy of attention. That these are just uh, small matters and not to be not to be addressed. And so, Edwards and the ministers who invited him to preach were quite alarmed by this indifference. And as history rightly tells us, they understood that such indifference would ultimately lead to the adoption and promotion of doctrines that were contrary to the pure doctrine of the absolute grace of God and salvation. So. For Edwards, Armenian doctrine allowed man to be put in the place of God in the election of believers, in the application of the merits of Christ's redeeming work, and in many, many other ways that he outlines in his uh, application section of the sermon. So, in fact, I'll just, I'll just close this introduction by saying this. While Edwards doesn't specifically mention Arminianism in the application section, he does note that whatever other way any scheme is inconsistent with our entire dependence on God for all, and in each of those ways of having all of him, through him, and in him, it is repugnant to the design and tenor of the gospel, Mm. and it robs it of that which God accounts its luster and its glory. Mm. And so we see the title of the sermon, God Glorified in Man's Dependence. So for Edwards, in many of Edward's time, any diminishing of that dependence diminishes God's ultimate purpose, which is to display his glory in the redemption of unworthy, completely dependent people. And to compromise on that is to compromise on God's ultimate purpose on all things. Yeah, and while I'm sure that our listeners are familiar to some extent with the history of Harvard um, that you just spoke about, um, some may not know that it was a strongly Calvinistic uh, university that was born out of Puritan um, Puritan theology and a desire for many of the children of the Puritans to gain an, a university education that was strongly Reformed and Calvinistic. Thomas Shepard being one of the presidents of Harvard. It's unbelievable. I remember hearing John Gerstner saying in the 1940s, Harvard was so liberal that justification by works was conservative at Harvard. So you see even, as you've pointed out, that shift in Edwards' day, um, I guess probably on account of rationalism, um, really destroying the God-centeredness and threatening um, to lose the solid biblical uh, foundation that the school had been started on. Um, Dave, I wanted to kick it over to you to ask you to walk our listeners into the overall structure of this sermon, Edward's approach um, with regard to the flow, the outline, and whatnot. Sure. Well, um, you know, style in many ways, uh, preaching in this this era is indicative of doctrinal allegiance. And uh, this is an example, you know, a very plain example of Puritan plain style uh, of preaching, which developed uh, not just among American Puritans, but you see it, you know, going back to William Perkins in The Art of Prophesying, you know, Perkins who lived from uh, 1558 to 1602, and uh, that emphasis on a very direct, uh, clearly discernible um, category or, or sectioning of, of the sermons where you move from text or exposition, which would typically be um, the, the least amount of the sermon devoted to that, just an unpacking, sort of a preliminary unpacking of the context and the contents of the verse or passage that the sermon is coming from, followed by a lengthier, um, relatively much lengthier section on doctrine, uh, followed then thirdly by uh, an application section, which would also be called uh, use or improvement, depending on the particular Puritan preacher. So you'll see those application sections. Uh, even among Edward's sermons, he he will call them different things, application or use or improvement. And typically, um, a good half or more um, of the sermon 
is taken up by these latter two sections, especially the doctrine section, oftentimes will be the longest part of these Puritan plain style uh, sermons. And, and the plain style developed uh, in some ways in response to the uh, the, the emphasis on eloquence for the sake of, of eloquence, uh, oratory for the sake of oratory, uh, kind of a um, an oratorical flourishing in the pulpit for its own sake that you'd see among the Latinarians uh, in the Anglican Church, and especially among many of the, uh, the Arminians, not that they were all Arminian, but among many of them, it was such an emphasis on that kind of, of eloquence for its own sake. And so Puritan plain style develops, and this is uh, an example uh, of that. And so Edwards just marches through the sermon, um, kind of 30,000 feet overview. His emphasis from the outset is that we are directly, immediately, and entirely dependent upon God for our redemption. And that's because God is the cause of the good of the redeemed. And, and here Edwards uh, talks about the fact that he gives us a redeemer, uh, that, that by faith we have access to all the benefits uh, that Christ has purchased for us. Um, we're, we're given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. You know, th- throughout the sermon, uh, Edwards, in a, in a true Calvinian fashion, you know, Warfield said of, of Calvin that he was the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Well, Edwards is being the theologian of the Holy Spirit in, in this sermon uh, for sure. But God causes our good, uh, emphasis on the covenant of works here and the grace that comes to us after uh, after that. Uh, God is the one through whom the good of the redeemed comes. And so God not only gives us a mediator, he is the mediator. Uh, he is both the purchaser and, and the price. Uh, so we are immediately dependent upon God for, for our righteousness, um, more so than, than even before uh, the fall. So uh, he is our objective good, Edwards would tell us. Uh, our inherent good is in God. Again, an emphasis on the Holy Spirit uh, inhabiting us, being a vital principle in our soul. And then Edwards wants to point out that our dependency um, glorifies God. So he establishes our dependency upon God and then says our dependency glorifies God. And this kind of ties back in with what Craig was saying earlier with regard to uh, the Arminianism of the time. And though Edwards doesn't explicitly state that in the, um, uh, in the improvement or the application section, he does say an interesting statement here after the, the quotation Craig gave us. Edward says that faith is a sensibleness of what is real in the work of redemption. So he defines faith as a sensibleness of what is real in the work of redemption. And what he would want us to understand about what is real in the work of redemption is our dependency upon the worker of redemption, which is the, the triune God. And so back at the very beginning of the sermon, um, he says that, um, you know, in this verse, we see that our dependence on each person of the Trinity for all our good, we are dependent on Christ, the Son of God, as he is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We are dependent on the Father who has given us Christ and made him to be these things to us. We're dependent on the Holy Ghost, for it is Him of him that we are in Christ Jesus, and it is the Spirit of God that gives faith in him. Uh, whereby we receive him and close with him. And so the Spirit gives us faith, which is a sensibleness of what is real in the work of redemption. And, and the very triune God who you know uh, gives us that faith is the worker of that redemption. And so then he kind of concludes by talking about this yields a, a for lack of a better way of stating it, and I can't think of a better way of stating it, a, cre- a creator-creature distinction. Right. Uh, so that that's sort of the... A flyover of, of the sermon. Yeah, thank you. That's very helpful. And, you know, under that first section when he, he moves out of the exposition, and interestingly, Edwards doesn't exposit the text a whole lot. He gives a little historical setting of uh, the Corinthians and the, the problem of wisdom of the world versus wisdom of God, which is really the first you know, five chapters of First Corinthians and setting it in that contextual, historical and textual context. He doesn't really spend a lot of times expositing it, rushes into the doctrine to deal with the, the different doctrines that are contained in those texts. But when he comes under the doctrine, under the first section and the first point, he, he emphasizes that everything that the redeemed have, have by the grace of God or have from the grace of God. I think especially when we are seeing all of these different um, debates right now in the broader Calvinistic world and even the confessional 
world, confessionally reformed world, over the grace of God. Is it all of grace, or how much do we talk about grace? And, you know, that's the big subject right now. I think Edwards is helpful in this sermon because in that first section, he basically says um, everything that we have, God's the author of it. He says, the redeemed have all their good of God. He's the great author of it. He's the first cause of it. It's not only the proper cause. It's of God we have the Redeemer, as you've already mentioned, Dave. It's of God that we have a Savior, that Jesus is not only God in his person, he's the only begotten Son of God. And he'll go on to say that Christ becomes ours and that we get everything from him. He'll say we're justified. Then he'll say, so it's God that delivers us from the dominion of sin. There's the definitive sanctification, the radical breach with sin's power. And then he says he cleanses us. There's progressive sanctification. He cleanses us from our filthiness. He changes us from our deformity. It's of God that the redeemed have all their true excellency, wisdom, and holiness. And so you see Edwards saying God's grace brings us not just justification and not just sanctification, but everything that we have, even our faith which obviously is a very typical Calvinistic understanding of what the scripture teaches, that even our faith is a gift from God. Jeff, you were talking to us about what theologians know as the Felix Culpa. Could you expand on what Edwards does in the sermon with that? Uh, What Edwards does throughout the sermon is to compare uh, man's dependence upon God uh, pre-fall in the Garden of Eden, Adam, and Eve, and man's dependence upon God post-fall, uh, and you find and you find this. Uh, Edwards, Edwards will talk about Adam in the garden, and he'll talk about uh, Adam after the fall and man uh, suffering as a consequence of that. But he also talks about uh, it being a greater uh, miracle or feat of of uh, effort on God's part to sustain the Christian by grace than it would have been, than it was for God to create Adam out of nothing. Right. And, and this is sometimes summarized uh, in discussions of Edwards' theology as the Felix culpa, or the oh, happy sin idea, that, that we are better off because, this may be a crass way of putting it, we're better off because of the fall than if the fall had not occurred. And what Edwards is suggesting is that were the were there not a fall, there would have been no incarnation, no incarnation, no God man, of course, and therefore no experience of by faith wrought union uh, being you know, brought into union with Christ. None of this would happen uh, without the fall, and that's basically what what you see throughout this sermon, and you see it in its true Trinitarian context, the Father. Uh, God is the the origin of the plan of redemption. Christ is the one who, uh, as the God-man, accomplishes redemption. And the Holy Spirit is the one who applies it. But more so, the Holy Spirit uh, is the gift of the work of Christ. In other words, Christ dies on the cross and is raised from the dead, ascends to the Father's right hand, receives the promised Holy Spirit, and pours the Spirit out on the church, of which we are, and we are beneficiaries of that. And so that whole idea of, of um, we're in a better position, you know, because of the fall than, than we would have been without a fall. That's kind of, that's, you find that throughout the sermon. Yeah, and explain a little bit, if you would, to our to our listeners how Edwards unpacks that with regard to holiness, um, and the the fact that the holiness we get now by grace is is greater because there's more opposition within us. Correct. Uh, Edwards talks about the fact that, uh, and this is related to what I said earlier about uh, there's more. Uh, it is a more significant um, activity of God to sustain the Christian uh, than, than it is to merely create Adam out of nothing. Now, he's not, he's not denigrating God's original creation, but he's, he's reminding us that in creation, Adam was created uh, with a holy disposition, but at, at originally there was no sinful nature. But now, for the, for the Christian, there is... Uh, a sinful nature to be reckoned with uh, in, that that God 
Um, so that's involved in the context of a consideration of holiness in the life of the believer. That is, that there is a, a greater need for God's grace in the life of the Christian because of the, the remaining uh, uh, traces of, of sin. Mm. So in other words, in pre-fall, Adam has a holy nature. Uh, post-fall, the Christian comes to faith in Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit and is caused to grow in grace through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and that requires a greater uh, necessity for grace than did the original situation in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall, mm. you know, because, I, because of sin. I think that's remarkable because I often think of my own lack of communion and fellowship with God because of my sinfulness and think about Adam's unbroken fellowship with God and, and longing for that and that being a motivation of what I now have in Christ is that, un, you know, the pursuit of what we will one day have is unbroken fellowship. But I think Edwards is right. We actually have greater blessings, um, as you've enumerated, um, on account of redemption that we have in Jesus. Um, there's a nice transition here because Edwards moves from everything by grace of God in Christ and the greaterness of the grace we have now than what Adam would have had in an unfallen condition, and then transitions very nicely into God is not only the author of our good, he is the object of our good. Dave, could you talk a little bit about where he goes and how he develops that in the sermon? Yeah, you know, this is, um, I mean, this is typically Edwardsian. Um, you know, it, it is the triune God who, who is our good, uh, not just that he purchases good for us or does good for us. He is our good. He doesn't want to just give us salvation. He wants us to give us himself. Um, you know, elsewhere, Edwards has said that, that for the believer, God so desirable that of all I desire, you know, not only does he, he purify our desires, he becomes the cream of our desires, the cream of everything that pleases us. And so, again, this fits within Edwards' desire that we would be utterly dependent upon God and it's something, a Trinitarian construct, that an Arminian theology doesn't do full justice to because an Arminian, con, or an Arminian theology does not emphasize our utter dependence and need for not only what each member of the Trinity does for us, but our need for each member of the Trinity, period. So uh, one of the ways that he does this is by saying that, that uh, God not only gives us the mediator and accepts his mediation uh, and of his power and grace bestows the things purchased on us by the mediator, but he, the mediator, is God. So if God gives us a mediator and God is the mediator, what Edwards is saying is God is giving us himself. Mm. And so what, and then when he later says that faith is a sensibleness of what is real in the work of redemption, I think you can safely say that faith is a sensibleness that God has given himself to us that our redemption is, as it were, God bequeathing himself uh, to us as, as a redeeming God. So he says, yea, God is both the purchaser and the price. Um, you know, he, he goes on to say that we have all, all of our good in God, and he is all our good. So he, he, keeps, he keeps sort of turning these phrases and concepts around. You know, the good of the redeemed is either objective or inherent, by their objective good, I mean that that extrinsic object in the possession enjoyment of which they are happy. Their inherent good is that excellency or pleasure which is in the soul itself, mm. res with respect to both of which the redeemed have all their good in God, or which is the same thing, God himself is all their good. Yeah, that's that's really very important. And I think as Edwards unpacks that and looking at the two paragraphs that follow his introduction of talking about the redeemed having their inherent good in God, um, Edwards really, in a very theological way, unpacks how Christ purchases the Holy Spirit, that what we get from the Redeemer in his, in his finished work is what he purchased for us, which is that 
the Holy Spirit, the third person, the Godhead, would seal us, that we would have drink from the the rivers of living water, which is obviously the Holy Spirit, that that's a, a metaphoric way that he is described. Edward says, the sum of what Christ has purchased for us is that spring of water spoken of in those places and those rivers of living water spoken. And the sum of blessings which the redeemed shall receive in heaven is that river of water of life that proceeds from the throne of God and the Lamb. And I love... This this kind of sermon, you could almost take just one of these paragraphs and read it and meditate on it all day. It's almost a sermon in a sermon, each paragraph. Every paragraph will preach. (laughs) They will. And, you know, Edwards often unpacks this idea. I remember in seminary, a seminarian challenging me on saying, and I was obviously just parroting Jonathan Edwards, that, you know, Christ purchased the Spirit for us. I think he says it in the unpublished essay on the Trinity, maybe... uh, in wisdom of God displayed to the angels, but clearly here in this sermon, he talks about it all the way through that Christ has purchased God for us, God the Spirit. And then um, the next paragraph, like we just said, another little sermon that the Holy Spirit is the good thing spoken of in Scripture. I've been meditating a lot on that verse, and Edwards quotes it in here where Jesus says, If your earthly fathers know how to give good gifts, and we all want good things. And Jesus acknowledges that evil earthly fathers give good things. How much more will your heavenly father not give you, you know, the Holy Spirit? That's the best gift. That's our highest good, our summum bonum. So um, very helpful section. Um, When Edwards sort of transitions out of this, he goes from doctrinal exposition now to applying it. And his application is really built into the, the title of the sermon. He says there, uh, God is glorified in the work of redemption by this means, one, that man has so much greater occasion and obligation to notice and acknowledge God's perfections and all sufficiency that that, that is a duty, and I don't mind using that word, that is a duty mm-hmm. laid on the creature, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That. Yeah. God uh, requires as a response to all these things that that ought to elicit out of us um, a greater occasion, a greater response from us to acknowledge God's perfections and all sufficiency. Um, And Edwards will go on in that whole section there to talk about God's sufficiency in himself. How important is that in the writing of Edwards on the whole? Any of you can answer that. Well, one thing I would just insert real quickly, um, I think – this is indicative of Edwards' overall theology of fitness. Uh, there are fit relations or meet or suitable relations between things. And so for you to speak of duty here, you know, for Edwards to say there is a required response to what the Trinity has done, that's just Edwards being consistent with himself because of the beauty and the loveliness and the effectiveness of what the Trinity has done. Um, the reason that there is a required response is because there's a fitness that exists between them. It, it just it's hand in glove, you know. The the one, um, the one begs the other, so to speak. Yeah, I can't uh, read this without uh, thinking about John Piper's love for Edwards and this sermon being, you know, the locus classicus of that whole thing, where where Edwards will talk about because God is self-sufficient because he is infinitely glorious because he is fit in himself and has all in himself and is our good and purchases that good for us and does everything for his redeemed. He'll say here at the end of this, um, introductory section of the, of the second section that the creature should have so absolute and universal a dependence on God provision is made that God should have our whole souls should be the object of our undivided respect if we have our dependence partly on God, partly on something else, man's respect would be divided mm. to those things on which he had dependence. And I read that, and, and it makes me want to give God more of my undivided soul because of what he's done. It's actually a powerful um, realignment in our thinking. Um, Dave, you pointed out um, in your outline earlier that um, Edwards will also talk about the flip side, and he'll say, man will not esteem that upon which he does not depend. Can you flesh that out a little bit from the sermon? Well, yeah, I think it ties back in with uh, Craig's introduction in the historical context where he talks about the Arminianism of the day. Uh, you know, we, we typically think of, say, the, the whole you know Calvinism versus Arminianism debate uh, 
you know, sort of zeroing in on one's view of the sovereignty of God and salvation, etc. What Edwards is doing here is essentially saying an Arminian understanding of, of the work of redemption because it does not give the Trinity its proper due or its proper glory. Uh, man, therefore, does not esteem the Trinity in, in an Arminian construct as he should because an Arminian explication of redemption uh, does not show man's dependence, utter, absolute dependence upon each member of the Godhead for the various sort of economical aspects of salvation, nor does it show man's absolute and utter dependence upon each member of the Godhead for each member of the Godhead. In other words, man's dependent upon God for the economics of salvation, and man is dependent upon the triune God because what God gives man in salvation is himself. Mm. And so man is not esteeming that upon which he does not uh, we might say fully or completely depend, and it's it's um, in the Arminian uh, construct of redemption that dependency is not fully explicated. Right, that's good. Anybody else want to add? To oh, that? I was just going. If I if I may, uh, David and Craig, maybe you can uh, respond. And Nick, of course. But isn't there a sense in which this sermon is the theological side of Edwards' doctrine of uh, uh, continuous creation and occasionalism. The, those are the philosophical categories. Break that down for our listeners, Jeff. Yes. Okay. Oh, oh, I have to do that? No. Uh, the <laughs> conti- continuous creation is the idea that, that uh, God recreates the universe every moment. Uh, and occasionalism is the doctrine that only God is the act is an active agent in the universe. Uh, there's some dispute over whether Edwards actually holds to those two doctrines as I've described them. I th- I think more or less he does with with some uh, provisos. But the whole point is, if you know about his under, if you understand that philosophically he's committed to a, some form of occasionalism and continuous creationism, what he's preaching here is of one piece with that. In other words, he's bringing out the theological, the biblical, the religious uh, side of the coin uh, where continuous creation and occasionalism are the philosophical side of the coin. That yeah, make this any is sense? The aspect of it, right? As it applies to you know soteriologically, yeah, I think yeah. so. I think so. Well, if if I could interject, he does in Original Sin. He talks a great deal about this, and he uses continuous creation as as a defense and a proof of the doctrine of the imputation of Adam's sin to his posterity, if you Correct. can believe it. I mean, so he does, he does have such an all-encompassing, comprehensive, integrated Mm. theological perspective that God as the source of all things and the upholder and the orderer of all things does relate to all the doctrines of Scripture and undergirds and supports and proves the doctrine of Scripture. If you do start out with man's utter and complete dependence upon God, both for creation, knowledge, truth, authority, excuse me, uh, basis of ethics, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's interesting that you should bring that up because I was reading that this week and thinking how it did relate to this sermon, that that the fact that we don't even have continuous identity apart from God right. giving us continuous identity as a person because as you know, as the old philosopher said, you can't put your foot in the same stream twice. So nothing that exists is the same thing from one moment to the next, apart from God's ordering and upholding all things and giving us continuous existence. So, so again, our dependence upon God does point ultimately to his power, his glory, his ordering, his genius, etc. And, and if I could add one more thing, that this whole idea of, of uh, God communicating to us his holiness and his happiness in the Armenian construct, sort of derogating and, and, and diminishing God's ultimate, uh, you know, grace behind all things, God's power behind all things, and our dependence upon God, is that 
if God's purpose, and according to Edwards it is, and I believe scripturally it is, to display and communicate his glory in and through the redemptive work of Christ in redeeming infinitely unworthy sinners, that all things display his glory. And so in communicating his holiness and happiness to us, getting back to your earlier points of our duty to give God glory, well, that indeed is part of God's overall purpose in all things, because as he communicates himself in, in us and through us by giving us of his spirit and giving us through his spirit his joy, his happiness that rejoices in him, it's a reflection back to him of his own, his own attributes, his own glory of the spirit of God displaying his, his character in and through us and echoing it back to the Father. So, so when Arminianism diminishes in any way that dependence, they not only diminish God's grace, but they're diminishing their participation or our understanding of our participation in God's ultimate purpose in all things. And part of his ultimate purpose in all things is our giving him glory and having joy and happiness in him, because that is his ultimate purpose in displaying and communicating his glory in and through us. Yeah, that's really good. I um, especially liked the way you were talking, Craig, about um, God's work of redemption, the different things that it displayed, and you said it displays his genius. And that's really a, a great way, and that's where Edwards goes when he transitions into the use section of the sermon. Um, and in that short paragraph, again, I think if you read enough Jonathan Edwards, you start to find you know, this discourse over here and this sermon over here are just a discourse or a sermon of this paragraph here in this sermon. And, you know, he, um, at the, the beginning, he sets out four uses at the end of the sermon. The, at the very beginning of the use section, he says, we may here observe the marvelous wisdom of God in the work of redemption. God has made man's emptiness and misery. I love this. God has made man's emptiness and misery, his low, lost, and ruined state into which he sunk by the fall an occasion to the greater advancement of his own glory, as in other ways, so particularly in this, that there is now much more universal and apparent dependence on man of man on God. So he goes back to what you talked about, Jeff, yes. about um, man having a greater dependence on God because of the estate of misery and lostness and uh, the ruinness in which fallen man finds himself by virtue of his fallen Adam, that God works his wisdom in that, in redeeming and making man more dependent on him. And um, it's marvelous when you think about, uh, Craig, I love the way you put it. Instead of talking about the wisdom of God, let's talk about the genius of God, that it is, it is the brilliance of God um, in all of this. Point I did want to make something that just stood out to me in this sermon, and that is in the first section under the point that the redeemed have all from the grace of God, Edwards notes that the benefit that we've been given is doubly infinite. Mm -hmm. And uh, because it includes deliverance from an infinite eternal misery and the giving of eternal and thus infinite joy and glory. Yes. And it, yeah. it, it's, it's a marvelous comment. And it reminded me of a comment he makes in his personal narrative when he's thinking of the depth of his own sin. You may be, you're, I'm sure you're all familiar with the personal narrative and how he struggles to come to an understanding and to have words to, de to describe what he feels about his own sin. And the only words he could come up with and that he could repeat to himself over and over was infinite upon infinite mm -hmm. in describing the view of his depth of his own sin. And here we see that God's doubly infinite benefit more than takes care of Edwards and, of course, of our infinite upon infinite sin that often we don't, the depths of which we can't barely, we can barely comprehend, but... God's infinite upon infinite blessings and benefits indeed provide an infinite blessing that takes care of all of that. You know, Craig, since you wrote a book with infinite in the title having to do with Edwards, I'd like to point out to our listeners that that is an enormous um, theological um, factor, significant factor for Edwards. And if you just as a... Uh, 
uh, little homeschool for you to do if you go home and you take this sermon and you sit down and go through it and look at how Edwards uses the idea of the infinite. In fact, all the way back at the top, he says, when he's talking about the re- redeemed having all grace from God, he says, the gift, which is the Son of God, was infinitely precious because it was a person infinitely worthy, a person of infinite glory. And also because it was a perfect person infinitely near and dear to God. And there he'll develop this all out in uh, Wisdom of God Displayed to the Angels. The grace is great in proportion to the benefit we have given us in him. The benefit is doubly infinite. That's what you were talking about, Craig, in that in him we have deliverance from an infinite because of an eternal misery and do also have eternal joy and glory. The grace in bestowing this gift is great in proportion to our unworthiness to whom it's given. Instead of deserving such a gift, we merited infinitely ill of God's hands. And so that's not that's not an overstatement. Uh, Edwards is not heaping up superlatives for effect. God is infinite. And I think that's one of the keys. Correct me if you guys think I'm wrong, but that's one of the keys in understanding Edwards' greatness is that he gets that concept. Yeah, and if I could if I could summarize what you said, it's God is infinitely great, so he infinitely condescended to our level to take upon himself an infinite debt and suffer infinite suffering for infinitely unworthy people to earn infinite merit that we might enjoy infinite blessing for infinite time and eternity. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, that's amazing. Yeah, and, and, and as you said, if you do start with an infinitely excellent and glorious God and the redemption is of infinitely unworthy sinners, there's nothing left but to, to merit infinite merit and give infinite glory because, as, as you've said earlier, and as Edwards makes so clear here, the purchase what he redeems us unto and what he purchases for us is himself who himself is infinitely excellent. That's why Edwards ends this sermon the way he does, as you've just pointed out that if God is infinite and if the sacrifice of Christ is infinite and if his humiliation is infinite and our unworthiness is infinite and the hell, the punishment we deserve is punishment at the hands of an infinite God against whom we've sinned, then the response to all of these things can't be any meritorious works we bring. It has to be God's condition of faith in a receiving and resting. And so in that third section of the use, right before the end of the sermon, Edward says, hence we may learn a reason why faith is that by which we come to have an interest in this redemption, for there is included in the nature of faith a sensible acknowledgement on the absolute dependence of God in this affair. You know, when you when you think about the debates of um, whether we're justified by faith alone, which obviously the Bible teaches, but so many people that want to cram works in there, they th- this is what they don't understand. This This is what the natural man misses and Edwards will go on in that last section of the use to actually say, let us be exhorted to exalt God alone. And then he says to have an eye to him alone. And then he says to mortify a self-dependent and self-righteous disposition. Edwards understands that at the heart of the natural man, conscience is hardwired to the covenant of works. Man is self-righteous. He is self-dependent and that he has to mortify those things and receive by faith what this infinite God has done in the infinite Christ for infinitely undeserving sinners like us. You know, Nick, that that's interesting the way that he draws again, and I'm probably going to sound like a broken record here, fitness, which is, you know, rather <laughs> – I hear Jeff laughing. <laughs> no, bring it home. Bring it home. But, um, you know, the, he says there in the third section of the use, um, it is very fit – that it should be required of all in order they're having the benefit of this redemption that they should be sensible of and acknowledge their dependence upon God for it. So what is that sensibleness? It's faith. So there, there's a fitness that exists between what God has done to secure redemption and faith in that God who has secured redemption. Because that's the only solution to, as you've said there, Nick, our, our self-righteousness and our self-dependence. But it's interesting that, that he goes even further than saying we're prone to self-righteousness and self-dependence. We're prone to seeking our happiness in ourselves. He says man is naturally exceeding prone to exalt himself and to depend upon his own power or goodness as though from himself he must expect happiness. Mm. 
So it's not just that we want to glorify ourselves and not depend upon God. We think that if we're going to be happy, we're going to have to conjure up our own happiness. We're going to have to find our own source of happiness. And uh, there's a miscellany, uh, 270, that, uh, you know, I think is so, you know, germane to this sermon. It's a very short one. He says, speaking of the glory of God, miscellany 270, that no actions are good but what have the honor of God as their chief end proposed is not necessary. Tis very true that no actions are good any further than they have God for their end, either the glorifying him or pleasing him or enjoying him. And love to God or inclination towards him must be its spring and motive. Even glorifying God is not a good end any further than our seeking his glory springs from love. And if a desire of enjoying God springs more from love than does a desire of honoring him, it is a better principle. So he brings it home, I think, in a very I don't know, personal, intimate way that will really preach that ultimately our dependence upon God frees us from seeking our happiness in ourselves. Our dependence upon God, this universal, absolute dependence upon God, frees us from thinking our ultimate enjoyment and happiness must be found in ourselves. Rather, it, it, our enjoyment and our happiness is alone in God. Amen. Yeah, that's outstanding. Yeah. We, we don't think about that too often, do we? We need sermons like this to remind us of um, what we are and, and how we act and where we seek happiness and where God wants us to. Um, Jeff, do you want to add anything to this? This is the real thing, and Schleiermacher is the counterfeit. Wow. Okay? I mean, that's think about funny. that. That's right? money, Jeff. <laughs> That's great. I mean, because Edward, we've, Edwards would, would agree that, that it's important that we recognize our dependence on God, but it's a God of the Bible. It's the triune God, mm. and he doesn't reserve it for an appendix at the end of his great work of theology. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah, so that 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 struck me too. I'm thinking, yeah, the the issue isn't uh, our awareness of our dependence. It's uh, who is the God that we depend upon. Right. That's right. You know, uh, John Gerstner once said of Schleiermacher and the neo Orthodox that their their slogan was, "There is no God, and Jesus is His Son." <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favorite quotes ever. <laughs> Very warped views of God. Yeah. <laughs> and if I could add one thing. Um, Edwards gets to the nth degree, it seems, more so than more so than uh, than most of the great theologians historically. Is that? And Jeff and I have had this discussion many times in in talking about the various errors with respect to inerrancy and justification. And if you really boil them all down, they all land themselves at a miss apprehension or misinterpretation or lack of appreciation of who God is. It really, most errors are an error of theology proper. Absolutely. Yeah. And, if, and if, mm-hmm. you're, if, you're, if your starting point is an infinite God that created all things upon whom all things depend for everything, including life, including knowledge, truth, authority, uh, you know, a moral fabric, everything, nothing there's nothing we don't depend upon God for, then what does that leave for any other mode of justification apart from the perfect work of Christ imputed, his perfect perfect righteousness imputed to us, uh, you know, apprehended or uh, given to us through faith? There's nowhere else to go. If you understand the nature of who God is and therefore understand the proper nature of who we are, it doesn't leave room for these other views of revelation, these other views of justification. They all, all these errant views point to a deficient view of the person, attributes, and the implications of the person and attributes of God. Yeah, you know, Ed, Edwards gets it. Yeah, yes, and I was yes. thinking about your doctoral dissertation, Craig, um, the infinite merit of Christ, uh, defense of the active and passive obedience of Jesus in the writings of Edwards, and as you were talking earlier about that, that's why I believe that Jesus kept the law and fulfilled the legal conditions of the covenant for me, 
not only because I can't, but because God demands it, because God is infinite and eternal. Right. And he's infinitely holy and eternally holy, and he can't lower his standards to something manageable. And I might even go further, Craig, in saying what you said about most errors, I would say every error in theology, while there may be a moral root of sin in the heart of the heretic or the the person in error, Every error in our theology is a failure to understand who God is properly. Mm. Mm. Yes. Theology proper sets the trajectory, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I think we're out of time, but guys, this has been very edifying for me as the host, listening mm. to you, hearing you pull things out of Edwards here and there, analyzing the sermon. I hope that it's a blessing to our listeners. I'm glad that we were able to consider this uh, great sermon of Jonathan Edwards, God Glorified a Man's Dependence. Um, you can uh, go out and I think there's still copies of Craig's book, The Infinite Merit of Christ in print. Is that correct, Craig? Uh, very difficult to find, it, it, but it, we, I do have a publisher. We're going to try and do a revised, revised version with an index, a subject index and a scripture index, and a foreword by Joel Beakey and some, some tweaking of the text hopefully by the end of August. Very nice. Until then, just uh, plug his inbox with emails. No, I'm just kidding. Um, asking for an electronic copy. Um, well, we're going we're gonna to post the PDF as well on the Jonathan Edwards uh, site at Yale, um, so people will have access to it there for free. Outstanding. Um, as well. Outstanding. So. Nice. Um, you also go out and get a copy of Craig's new study guide to religious affections. Sounds like it'd be, that'd be a great book for all kinds of settings in the church, mm. personal study. What an amazing book dealing with experiential Calvinism, um, by Jonathan Edwards and, um, keep your eyes open also for Craig's forthcoming study guide to original sin published by solid ground publishers. Very nice, very nicely done, um, publications by them. Um, check out Dave Filson online. You can find some of his sermons at Christ Presbyterian Church's website in Nashville. You can also read his blog, teachinglikerain.wordpress.com. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Dave, you said that you'll be teaching January 2013 um, a, another course on the theology of Jonathan Edwards at RTS Charlotte. Is that correct? That's, uh, that's correct. It's uh, for their D-Men module. And okay. so if there are any D-Men students uh, out there, please come. We'll have a great time. Very nice. That sounds great. I wish I, wish I could make it to that. And then um, Jeff Waddington, as, as many of you will know, you can find him all over the web. Jeff, has, <laughs> Jeff writes with me at feedingonchrist.com. He is a regular panelist on Christ the Center, uh, Reform Theological Podcast. He writes on a number of the other blogs and does a number of other shows with the Reform Forum at reformedforum.org. And again, we thank you for tuning in to this uh, second episode of East of Eden, the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. We hope that you'll tune in again. Good day. <laughs>